Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. James. Hi. And This week, we find out what's causing these mysterious holes in Siberia, what's going on on the surface of the sun with some nano flares, and just what exactly is in the vast emptiness of space? And the answer, of course, is not nothing. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So, Siberia is known for many things. Obviously, the vast tundras, frozen wastelands, gulags, Soviet uh, regimes, but also mysterious events happening in. We've always... We've heard of the Tunguska incident, which is the uh, massive asteroid that flattened forest in Siberia in the turn of the century. Um, but there's been some more, even more mysterious things occurring in Siberia. So what is going on here, James? And is it Vladimir Putin uh, just summoning demons from the depths of the underworld? Or is there something else going on? Well, it might look that way. Tell me, what would you do if you were walking with your, you know, your herd of reindeer through the Siberian wilderness and you came across a deep, dark hole? Uh, probably not jump in, because that would be bad. Well, apparently they didn't, but they did report what they'd found, and they sent some helicopters to go and have a look, because, funnily enough, deep holes in the middle of nowhere that appear out of nowhere are somewhat concerning for most people. Yes. Many theories have been suggested, from probably some from geotechnical engineers about sinkholes to some from slightly people without engineering degrees about uh, um, alien invasions. What it turns out, to be, however, at least going from this theory, is some sort of leak from the permafrost layer that contains most of the methane that is captured under that portion of Siberia. Now, this area within Siberia has a very large underground uh, methane reserve. However, the previous two years of summers in Siberia have been very warm. I'm sure warm is a relative term, given it's Siberia. Siberia. However... When they examined the partial pressures of the gas that was floating out of the hole, they found that the concentration of methane was about 9.6%. For context, this is over 50,000 times higher than its ambient concentration. So they found this like basically a source of methane just producing from from the permafrost because it was melting. Correct. And just for reference, uh, by the usual standards, this is an amount of methane that if you held a match over it, and heated it enough, it would explode. So, for reference, <laughs> this, is, this is a significant portion of methane in the, in the air here. So it was just being stored inside the permafrost itself? Yes. I believe the idea is some um, organic matter, when it, when it rots, produces methane, and the structure of the geology in the area is such that it gets captured. So this is one right. of those, those consequences of warming in the atmosphere you start to release some of the built, some of the methane and oxia to in other areas that is held underground, and then release more into the air. So did they did it... actually try and have a look down to see how big this hole was, and it was sort of they got to about seventy meters before they ran out of cable. So <laughs> this is not a, a small hole or a small uh, amount of methane that's being released. So did the was the hole actually produced then by an explosion from the methane? Uh, I don't believe that is the current theory. But it just but it, cascaded and collapsed in and of itself when the, the gas basically expanded and lost some of the ability to hold up the hole. I believe so. It, it seems to sound that there may have been an, an explosion at some point in that process of it coming to the surface. Mm. It doesn't look like that final hole is actually the direct result of an explosion. 
right? So it's not like there was just some massive explosion of methane that's caused this massive column to fall down. It's probably like a bubble underneath it that then caused it. Once it made its way to the surface, just collapsed in on itself. Indeed. That's incredible. So um, is this quite common in in Siberia or is it just a a product of the the glacial freezing and and reheating or is it something that's isolated uh, to the specific area? I think it, it's it's likely it's likely to occur in any region that has this particular geology. Mm. Now, how common that is, I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure. However, they do the researchers who discovered this did note that um, the hole itself was already collapsing and would disappear fairly soon. So, given how remote Siberia is, there may be many of these around that nobody would know about if reindeer herders hadn't happened to come across them. Well, that's right. The important part about this entire equation is that we actually managed to find out simply because someone was there close enough for it to actually occurring. And metaphorically tripped over it. Yes. Well, thankfully, they didn't fall down this 70-metre mineshaft of uh, methane. 70. 70, sorry. 70-metre mineshaft of methane. So that, that's, that's an incredibly fascinating story about some of the weird and interesting things that can occur in the middle of nowhere. And I guess it answers the question. If, if uh, methane gas is leaking out in high concentrations in the middle of a forest and no one is there to, to see it, does it really happen? And the answer is, I, scientifically, yes. Lauren, you have a lot of experience with scientific content, what with being one of the producers of the podcast and doing this for a few years now. Surely you must be able to answer a really simple scientific query I have. What is uh, the hottest part of the sun? Is this a trick question? Um, uh, is it like a candle and it's the surface? Like. I- so you're suggesting the surface of the sun is the, the hottest part, you know, the part that's this writhing massive sea of miasma of uh, boiling hotness? Yes, I would like to lock in that answer, Eddie. Okay, well, uh, James, do you have any ideas on this? Okay, so there's been a very interesting uh, story that's come out of NASA and through the Goddard Space Flight Centre that has actually addressed this very question, and the results are quite surprising. So just to give a bit of background, um, NASA don't only launch very large rockets, they also launch some smaller ones. And this particular one was a what's known as a sounding rocket. So a relatively small one that goes about 200 kilometres up, carrying a small pack of sensors that basically don't work inside the atmosphere. So we lift them up high enough that they get out of the atmosphere and can take detailed data. So so happened this relatively cheap rocket, of course relative, um, was happened to be carrying spectrograph. And in 1.3 seconds of data, they discovered something very, very curious going on. So the machine, the rocket itself carried a spectrograph. This spectrograph uh, observed a spectral line corresponding to about 10 million degrees Kelvin. Well, hang on a second. 10 million degrees Kelvin. Yes, I'm not exaggerating. 10 million degrees Kelvin. That's crazy. For reference, the surface of the sun is a couple of million degrees Kelvin. So the theory about where this comes from are these things called nanoflares. And that very, very, very high temperature, that extremely high temperature, is a signature of nanoflares. Um, which rapidly cool down to the couple of million degrees that we you know, normally think of as the surface of the sun and form the, a lot of the material in the corona. That's right. So when you think about the sun, a flare is those little arcs that come out of it and then back to the surface, they sort of get pulled back from the gravitational pull. But those flares, they fire up all other kinds of um, particles, uh, solar rays, and this is why we have a solar wind. It's why we can lose satellites that can get knocked out by solar flares and all kinds of things. But this is not a really big one. Like So sometimes solar flares can you know, be many sizes, many times the size of Earth. So we're obviously talking about really small ones here, not these so massive coronal ejections. 
So the nanoflares themselves are basically undetectable. However, we can detect the ensemble effect of all of them, and this is what we think is actually the, producing most of the structures that are in the sun, although this theory is still very much the process of doing, being developed. It's basically mm. the only theory that didn't fall down when they found these 10, 10 million degree temperatures. Um, they, they themselves, the nanoflares that is, are produced from a process called magnetic recombination. This occurs in plasmas, which you pretty much only find in research labs or on the sun, uh, where the magnetic topology is rearranged um, and the magnetic energy that's encapsulated in the fields that are around the sun uh, is converted to kinetic and thermal energy. So in oh, other words, oh, that's, that's amazing. That is, conver- that is producing these incredibly hot things that come from is actually from the particles rearranging their positions and changing their velocities, and ex- their velocities and temperatures due to an incredible amount, the incredibly strong magnetic fields that the sun produces. Well, that, that, that's really interesting because the interplay between, I guess, the, the particle physics and the strong, strong weak nuclear forces and the electromagnetic forces that we're more familiar with, that, that's, that's amazing. That is actually, it's so hot that you're, you're basically changing stuff that doesn't, would never normally happen. You're sort of at the real extreme end of uh, physics. Yeah, so the incredible thing here is really that this, this, show, this, I guess, shows how, in some ways, how little we know about many aspects of uh, our own solar system, never mind the wider universe. This was the result of, you know, a couple of years' worth of project and six minutes of data. Imagine what we could do with more of these kind of accurate devices. And that's one of the really impressive things about these rockets is they're cheap and can be used to test new equipment. And funnily enough, when you do start testing new equipment, you tend to find all sorts of interesting things under the carpet, or in this case, in the boiling mass of the sun. Well, that, that's exactly right. And um, we have a lot of probes that actually monitor the sun. And, and you must think it's such a boring job as a spaceship to be like, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go into space. Okay, great. That's excited. I'm, I'm excited. And I want you to, to orbit the sun. Okay, that, that's pretty good. I, I can live with that. I just want you to stare at it all the time for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For year upon year upon year, and you just got to recapture everything that happens on the sun, and that's what these things do. And what they actually find is, in the smallest pockets of data for monitoring over years, they can actually find really amazing things that can revolutionise the way we think about physics and even our own solar system. So it goes to show the power of uh, cost-effective and interesting new applications of scientific probes. As the great Carl Sagan used to say, we're all made of stardust. Um, We are all the products and everything that we see around us is the product of once inside a star that was crushed and then fused and then went through the star's life being burned off. And then when that star finished its life, it exploded and spread its material all the way across the universe. And that's what makes up everything that we see here and around us, this product of this things formed inside stars especially heavy elements like iron, copper, and anything like that, all formed out of the base particles that were once inside the heart of a star. But inside space, what we think of as empty, this vast area of what looks like nothing, is in fact so empty after all. So what's actually travelling through this mysterious void of space, Lauren? So, Justin, you mentioned, like, stars bursting apart and spreading their molecules... Well, it turns out that, like, in the vast reaches of interstellar space, there are countless little small molecules slowly, like, tumbling and travelling through it. And sometimes they come across stars. And these ancient stars sometimes can cook these little molecules and they can turn into things like carbon and hydrogen, carbon and hydrogen, 
and silicon and other atoms in the universe. And, and they can actually, what's even more amazing about this is they can be traveling along, but because they're exposed to such strong heats, they can, they can even make structures that we, we would never see on Earth. Sometimes we have actually um, observed the phenomenon from these little molecules. They're called diffuse interstellar bands. So we, we can actually pick them up using like a, spe- a spectral study of, of, of the starlight that we receive. That's all I know. Yeah, so we actually, by doing like a spectroscopy study, we can actually identify some of these crazy new compounds that are actually existing there and floating out through in the solar winds from other stars. Um, and it, one of the really interesting things that they've actually found is there's been some really weird silicon-carbon hybrids, or mixtures of silicon, carbon, hydrogen, uh, in a variety of different areas. And it requires so much heat and or, or lack of heat to actually produce that to actually see it on Earth is would never have occurred naturally. Um, so they actually, in some labs with some jet-powered, uh, jet-cooled uh, silicon acetylene discharges, they've actually managed to to reproduce some of these things that we've seen just travelling around in, in the depths of space, um, which is really interesting because these kind of really complex hydrocarbons aren't incredibly easy for us to understand, but they're really important to our everyday lives. So a really complex hydrocarbon chain such as petroleum is kind of fundamental to our existence but also different kind of complex molecules that make up these exotic materials that are just traveling through space can give us ideas about new things that we could design on a molecular level that could have a variety of properties and be able to survive in really uh really extreme environments so space is not as empty as it appears it's actually home to a bevy of interstellar voyages these small traveling molecules that grow and change along their journey when they get either superheated or super cooled this has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out how permafrost defrosting in Siberia can cause mysterious holes, what nanoflares are and how they can impact us on Earth, as well as the mysterious particles that can travel through space. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.